Hello. Thank you for downloading this sermon by Pastor Casey Helenchek. Casey is a missionary pastor with Village Missions. Currently, Casey and his wife Hope and their six children serve the Bangor Community Church and the surrounding area of Bangor, California. Village Missions exists to glorify Jesus Christ by developing spiritually vital community churches in rural North America. We now invite you to open your Bibles and journey with us. All right. Well, if you would, please grab your Bibles with me and turn to Luke chapter 9, or I'm sorry, 19. Uh, We're not going back in time. (laughs) Uh, Luke chapter 19. And as I continue to say, if you do not have a Bible, if you are in need of a Bible, uh, if you uh, do not own a Bible, please see me after the service and we can work on getting one into your hands. Uh, We are continuing through Luke's gospel this morning. Uh, And as we do, we are at the conclusion of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Next week in our series, uh, we are going to see him ride into Jerusalem uh, to uh, kick off the last week of his life. Uh, This was a a journey that started way back towards the end of Luke chapter 9, that Jesus set his face upon Jerusalem. And through that journey, Jesus's entire focus has been on the kingdom of God. Everything, his teachings, his healings, his miracles, all of it, all designed to focus his followers on the coming kingdom of heaven. We've seen on this journey uh, many who have become citizens of heaven, uh, including just last week we looked at Zacchaeus and his becoming a new creation. And as we finished up with Zacchaeus last week, uh, listen to the words of Jesus as he spoke in verses 9 and 10. He said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that declaration of Jesus, uh, that he came to seek and to save the lost, that, that even someone like Zacchaeus could be saved. Uh, this declaration leads directly into our passage this week. This is Jesus's last teaching before entering Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to read Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. I encourage you to follow along in your preferred translations. Uh, So Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second man came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, reap what you did not sow. 
He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thus says the word of God. There are some interesting things in there that uh, are very context dependent, as I'm sure you can can tell. Uh, We're going to look at some of those things. Uh, Jesus tells those around him, tells them one more parable uh, before they leave Jericho and they go on up to Jerusalem. And especially in Luke's gospel, I love these, these parables where Luke tells us the why and the purpose of the parable before telling us the parable itself. Uh, it takes a, a lot of the guesswork and the, the confusion out of trying to understand it. Uh, it gives us at least a, a pathway to understanding what is it that Jesus is, is communicating with these parables. So the people were, were watching Jesus. They were following Jesus and hearing Jesus. And they had a great misunderstanding. Uh, as we saw in, in what Mike read this morning, this is a common misunderstanding. They thought that the kingdom that Jesus was teaching them about and pointing to was appearing immediately. It appears that they had assumed that upon his arrival in Jerusalem, they expected him to be established and inaugurated as king, and he would free Israel from Roman occupation. Uh, They kept asking him this question during his time on earth. Uh, Again, they asked him after his crucifixion when he was risen, Lord, will now the kingdom of heaven be appearing? So it's not for you to know the time. Uh, They were preoccupied, not with Yes, with the kingdom that Jesus was teaching them about, but preoccupied with uh, it's happening now, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's kind of what the disciples sound like when I read through this. And so to dispel some of these expectations, Jesus tells them this parable. And so again, the, the underlying purpose of this parable is that no, the kingdom is not coming yet. Uh, I think of, uh, I read this parable, I read the commentaries on, I read the, the background of this, and it reminds me of, 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 if some of you know in TV shows, especially in police procedurals or something like that, sometimes they claim that a particular show or a plot line is, is based on true events. Uh, it ripped from the headlines, they sometimes say. Now, this doesn't mean that they're telling the true story. Uh, what this means is that they were inspired to use the true events to, as a basis for the story that they wanted to tell in their show. And that's kind of what Jesus did here with this parable. This parable, uh, without getting too much into, into history this morning, we can go over that Wednesday mornings if we want to get deeper in that, but the outline of this parable would have been immediately recognizable uh, to the Jewish crowd. This was based on an event that happened uh, almost 30 years prior. King Herod the Great died. And part of his kingdom was left to his, or his kingdom was left to his sons, divvied up into a, a couple of different parts. Uh, and the one son particularly uh, was put in charge of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Uh, he had to go to Rome 
to be declared king. Rome didn't like the word king. They gave it out infrequently. They even called their own Caesar as opposed to king. So to be declared king, he had to go to Rome to receive kingship. Uh, and this was not well received among the Jewish community. Uh, there had been different conflicts with this son, uh, different uh, uh, things happening. And so they sent a delegation after him to Rome to tell Rome, please don't make him this king. Please don't let him rule over us. Uh, and so this was the history that that as they are hearing this parable from Jesus, all of the Jewish people in the community would have known instantly what he was referencing and where this story came from. Now, the details are slightly different uh, as this story was about Jesus himself, not a, not a bad ruler, not a bad king, but about Jesus. And he is, uh, this man was taking over authority and, and ownership as a king over that territory but to do so, he had to leave that territory for a time. And as he was getting ready to go, he left in, in the hands of some of his most trusted servants responsibility. We see that this is uh, not only in the historical situation I mentioned, but we see that this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus as well. His death, burial, and resurrection is him taking ownership and being granted authority over his kingdom. Then he ascended into heaven, leaving his earthly kingdom. And as he was about to ascend, he gives a great commission in Matthew 28. He gives what he told the, the disciples in Acts 1. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and all the world. Go do these things. You now have the responsibility of the kingdom in your hands as my servants. And so in very real ways, this parable is in reference to, to all of us as believers in Jesus Christ, his servants as we await his return. In the parable, the king gives his servants resources so that they could go on continuing the, the, the master's business while he was gone. And he gives each of them the same resources. Each servant gets one mina. Now this is uh, uh, approximately three months wages is, is, a, is one mina. Uh, he gives them each the same amount. And this is one of the things that makes this story uh, different from the story it sounds very much like. It sounds uh, very much like the well-known parable of the talents that we find in Matthew 24. And they do have some similarities. They have some similar phrasings. Uh, but the ultimate point in the setup is different. In the parable of the talents, the servants are given different amounts of gifts and talents based on what they will do with them. One was given ten. One was given five, etc. And this is to show that we all have different spiritual gifts. We all have different talents and abilities that we can use for God. And that we are to use what he has given us and not compare us to what he has given to others around us. That's the parable of the talents. In this parable, each servant is given one mina. Uh, again, about three months worth of wages. Each servant is given the same thing. And so the point is not to do more or less based on what we're given. But the point is to be faithful with what he has given. He has given each of us the same thing. The parable is not that he's given us each different gifts and abilities, but that he has given us all the same mission, uh, all the same resources, and that is the gospel. He has given us that to each and every single one of us, the same gospel to each and every single one of us. And it is our job until he returns to be faithful and to invest what he has given us. 
Now, before we get into whether the servants invest their resources well, we see that not everyone was a faithful servant. Not everyone was a servant. There were many who were living in the kingdom of the parable who hated the king. Now, some of this, this phrasing can get a little confusion, confusing. The, the kingdom mentioned in this parable is not the, the, the far-off uh, heavenly kingdom of heaven that citizens of the kingdom are believers who will be in heaven. Jesus is using the example of a kingdom here on earth, uh, the kingdom of this world, our earthly home, where Jesus is still the king, and all who live on earth are citizens of it. Jesus is king. He is creator. He has all authority over earth, but not all here today on earth accept his authority. Some, maybe many, hate that he claims to be their king. They reject his authority. They rebel against him. Uh, The good news is that he reigns whether they accept him or not. The good news is that he reigns whether they like it or not. Jesus will deal with them later. To make this simple, we are living between verses 14 and 15. Verse 15 shows that when the master returns, he will call his servants to give an account for how well they have invested their resource while he was gone. The second coming, Jesus will return. And he will make his servants stand and give an account for what they have done. As believers, we will still stand before him. We don't escape judgment uh, in that regards uh, as believers. But what it is, is we will stand, give an account to him for our actions, for our sins, for our faithfulness. But we will be spared the wrath of our actions. And we will be forgiven. We will be declared righteous in his eyes. Uh, So to be clear, and I'll say it many different times in many different ways, we will not give an account in order to see whether we get into heaven. We will not give an account on whether we deserve to get into heaven or whether we have earned entrance into heaven. But we will give an account as to whether we have been faithful to what he has called us to and what he has enabled us to. Again, all believers, if you are saved, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, All believers will have perfect eternal life in communion with God in heaven. That is not the question of this parable. That is not the point the parable is either trying to make or undercut. But there's one thing that we don't talk a lot about because I don't think a lot of us understand it. I know I don't understand it very well. The Bible says it enough different places that we have to look at it. Not all believers, all believers will enter heaven. But not all believers that enter heaven will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. All believers enter heaven, but there will be different levels of rewards and responsibilities. Not less perfect because it's all all perfect eternal heaven and perfect paradise, but things will be based different based on our earthly service and faithfulness. Bible speaks numerous times, Matthew 6, 20. 1 Corinthians 3, specifically verses 8, 14, and 15. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Just to name a few to show I'm not making any of this up. Uh, Again, I don't fully understand it, but it's not something that we can just ignore because the Bible speaks on it, uh, especially as often as that. And so we see with the three servants uh, that Jesus points out here in this parable, we see an example of that. Remember, all the servants were given the same amount, the same resource, one mina. The first servant, he says, your mina has grown into 10 minas. He invested it well. And it's almost, 
Uh, the way he says it, almost as if the mina itself took over and did all the work. It did it all on its own. Almost like we plant the seed of the gospel. But the Lord brings forth the increase. The gospel does all the work by itself. If we are faithful to spread it, if we are faithful to invest in it, if we are faithful to live it and to share it, and he is both praised and rewarded by Jesus. The second is close to the first. He is faithful. The one mina he received grew to five minas. Again, almost as if on its own. Jesus rewarded this servant as well, though not quite to the same level as the first. The principle that we see in both of these is the same. Those who are faithful with little will be entrusted with much. And now Jesus comes to the third servant. And he comes to, comes to Jesus and he gives his, his one mina back. Tells Jesus, I didn't want to waste your resources. I didn't want a chance losing what you gave me. I kept it to myself so that I could give it right back to you since it is yours. It is not mine, it is yours. He kept it under a bushel. He didn't labor. He didn't conduct business. He didn't let the money multiply itself. And so the master rips into him. He uses his words right back at him. And Jesus will use our own words, our own attitudes, and our own actions when confronting us and when he convicts us of our sins. The, the master tells this guy, you say that I am severe. You say that I take what's not mine. You say that these things. And if you really believe these things, then you still don't have an excuse because you still didn't do the bare minimum, the least that you could have done. You could have done something minimal, requiring no effort on your part. In that context, he says you could have put it in the bank so it at least could have made interest. In our context, at least live your life as a Christian. Don't give in and live just like the rest of the world. Even if you're not going to go out and invest in the gospel, even if you're not going to uh, go out and actively evangelize. Even if you're not going to go out and publicly stand for these different things, at least don't actively hide the fact that you're a believer. At least do the absolute minimum so that the work of the gospel would still have a chance to replicate instead of burying it or hiding it. And so Jesus rebukes him. He tells him that even what he had will be taken from him. He says, he tells the man, rewards will be withheld from you. Those rewards that would have gone to you will now be reallocated to those who were faithful. He says that to give the one minor that was given to this servant and give it to the one who earns 10. If you are unfaithful with a little, you will lose what little you have. Now, some see this third servant as an unbeliever, as someone who is playing church, someone who, who knew the role to play but was never really uh, converted, who was never really saved. And that's possible. But to me, the way it reads, this, this man is saved. He is a servant of Christ, but he is saved with no reward. Salvation is not based on our faithfulness. Salvation is based solely on the grace of God alone. We are sinful. We are unfaithful. We are prone to wander. And yet Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, in my eyes, these three servants and their interactions with the master, this is an in-house discussion, uh, if you will. It's, it's a, amongst believers within the church. Uh, the way I read it, uh, it's, it's different levels of faithfulness among Christians. Another part of that reason why I think that is that there's another group of people that the master will now deal with. 
And the third servant is not lumped into with this other group. In verse 27, the master turns his attention to those mentioned back in verse 14. Those who were the enemies of the king. Those who rebelled against him. Those who rejected his authority. They are those who chose not to be a part of his kingdom. And he says, bring them to me, for they will be slaughtered. Now, God is a God of love, and we do not deny that. In fact, we embrace that. We bank on that. Because if he was not, we're lumped in with this group as well. But he is not only a God of love. He is a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of wrath, but he's a God of mercy. And all of these, he is perfectly, perfectly all these things, and all balanced with each other. We are all born as those who reject the king and rebel against him. All of us in our own nature are these men who, who said, I do not want him to reign over us. By God's grace, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, he has purchased our forgiveness and he offers it and salvation to any who believe, who turn to him, who trust him, who repent of their sins. He offers free for all who believe. But those who continue to reject him, those who continue to rebel against his authority, they will not receive eternal life in the kingdom. They will not receive the peace of God. Instead, they will face eternal judgment. They will face the deserved and earned punishment that we all deserve and earned. But they will actually have to face that punishment for their sins. They will receive the full wrath of God. Jesus shows what this looks like to John, who describes it in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark in its name. Those are not ones who have received Christ and are unfaithful. But those who have rejected Christ and worship anything and everything else. Of course, it is plain to see that eternity in heaven, even with no reward, is infinitely better than eternal wrath and judgment. As Jesus is telling this parable to those who are around him, at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus' time on this earth is close to an end. The people around him needed to make a decision. They had heard all that Jesus had said, all that he had taught. They had seen or they had heard of all the miracles and the healings. They had been presented with all of the information. And they were called to make a decision. Are you going to be a servant or are you going to reject him? And now Jesus' time away is coming close to an end. No one knows the day except the Father, but it's close to coming to an end. We have been presented with all the information needed and it is time for us to make a decision. The first decision, if you have not, is to receive Christ joyfully. We saw that last week with Zacchaeus, received him joyfully. We are to call out to Jesus, the son of David, like we saw the week before that with Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy on me. 
and receive him joyfully. Second, and only after the first, because without the first, the second has no point. It has no effect. Second, we work towards being a good and faithful servant. Kent Hughes uh, is the one who calls us investing in the gospel. And he writes, and he asks the question, are we investing in the gospel? Are we investing what he has done for us? Are we investing what he can do for others? This is not a question of giftedness, but of faithfulness. Are we using what we have to invest in the ministry of the gospel? There are many specific applications to this question. Are we using our money to invest in the good news? Jesus minced no words about this, saying, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Your money personally given to aid people in need or to promote evangelism and missions will win souls, eternal friends who will welcome you into heaven. How do you spend your time? Your personal calendar tells all. Everyone can make massive investments in the matter of prayer, but few do. Do your mouths, the things we say, invest testimony and witness? There can never be such a thing as a passive investment. Gospel investment requires action. So number one, above, receive Christ joyfully. Call out to him. That determines our eternal destination. That determines our salvation. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Receive him and cry out to him. Trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. That is what determines where we go. Number two above affects what that looks like in our already determined eternal destination. I'll finish this up with a quote from J.C. Ryle. He summed it up best, I think. It says, our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. And so again, don't misunderstand. Don't hear legalism in this. Don't hear works-based salvation in this. Don't hear we have to earn our way to heaven or earn God's forgiveness or earn God's love. That is not what is being said here. Salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. It is a gift that no one can earn. The, as I quote often Jonathan Edwards, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So do not hear that we can do anything or we have to do anything to get salvation. But once we have it, Jesus is clear throughout the Gospels. Paul is clear throughout the letters. The Bible is clear throughout itself. We now have a responsibility. After salvation, we have a responsibility to be faithful to what God has given us. To be faithful, to invest, to be good stewards, to to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all God commands, to be Christ's witness throughout all of Jerusalem, all of Samaria, and all the nations, to go out to, to shine the light of the gospel, to spread the good news of the kingdom, to go out and to be good stewards of the gift that he has given us. That is our responsibility after we are given the gift that he gives us. And when we get to stand in front of him, if we have been given that gift, we have, earned, we have been given the ticket in. And that ticket will not be taken away. But how we are received and the rewards and the responsibilities 
And in, in the Bible terms, responsibilities are rewards in heaven. But what we get, rewards and responsibilities in heaven, will be determined by how faithful we were with what he has given us. Please keep those two things distinct, but connected as well. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, there are things that you have told us that we don't understand as much as we want to. And how this all works, how rewards in heaven work, we, I don't understand fully. But you have made it clear that that is the case, and you have called us to be faithful servants. You have called us to be good stewards. You have called us to work towards the kingdom after you have given us our free gift. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Gift of eternal life given to all who would believe. Now it is up to us what we do with that. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to opportunities, open our hearts to the desire to serve, open our, our minds and our, our, our bodies to the actions that we can take to show people the gift that you have given us, to show that that gift is available to them and to be good stewards of the gospel that you have entrusted in us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for what you continue to do and will do in the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Bangor Community Church. You can find us at facebook.com forward slash B-A-N-G-O-R Community Church C-A, all one word. If you would like to connect with Pastor Casey, please hop on over to caseyhelenchuk.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y-H-O-L-E-N-C-I-K.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you again for listening and joining us on our journey through God's word. If you've listened this far and believe in our ministry or us as a family, please consider partnering with us. We would be honored to know that you are praying with and for us. If you feel compelled to give through financial support, information on how and where to give can be found at caseyholanchik.com slash giving. Thank you and God bless.